Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. Our president, Tencho Gatso, is still in Dharamsala, India on a work trip. So I will be your host for today's program, and I thank you for joining us. On this episode of Tibet Talks, we have an important anniversary to discuss. But first, this week also marked a different anniversary, the birth anniversary of Gendun Cheki Nima, the 11th Penchen Lama of Tibetan Buddhism, who turned 34 this past Tuesday, April 25th. Although the Penchen Lama's birthday should have been a festive occasion, in fact, it was a somber one. That's because the Penchen Lama has not been seen in public for nearly 28 years. On May 17, 1995, just three days after the Dalai Lama identified the then six-year-old Gendun Chekinima as the reincarnated Penchen Lama, the Chinese government abducted the child and his parents. No one has heard from any of them ever since. This brazen act of kidnapping and child abuse is an unspeakable international crime, but China's actions were even more nefarious than that. Historically, the Dalai Lama and the Pension Lama have played a vital role in identifying one another's reincarnations. So after kidnapping Gendun Chekinima, China appointed its own Pension Lama, who today serves mainly as a mouthpiece for Beijing. If the time comes to identify a successor to the current 14th Dalai Lama, there is little doubt that Beijing will use its own choice for the Pension Lama to select its own Dalai Lama. We in the international community must not let that happen. China's abduction and continued disappearance of the Pension Lama is part of the anti-religion Chinese Communist Party's long-term plan to interfere in the succession of the Dalai Lama. Thankfully, countries like the United States have already said that His Holiness's succession is a purely religious matter that only Tibetan Buddhists can, and not Chinese communists will get to decide on. In fact, the U.S.'s Tibetan Policy and Support Act of 2020 makes it clear that if any Chinese official tries to interfere in the succession of the Dalai Lama, they will be sanctioned by the United States government. Passing the TPSA was a major step towards safeguarding the religious freedom of the Tibetan people. But we must continue to call for the Pension Lama's freedom and safety. Please sign ICT's new petition to House Select Committee on China Chairman Mike Gallagher and Ranking Member Raja Krishnamurti, calling on them to raise the Pension Lama with Chinese government officials. The link to the petition is www.savetibet.org slash pension underscore Lama. With all that said, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, there is another important anniversary for us to discuss today on Tibet Talks. In March 2013, Xi Jinping became president of the People's Republic of China. That followed him taking over as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party a few months earlier. At the time, 
there was optimism that Xi's status as a perceived moderate, as well as his personal family connections to the Dalai Lama, would lead to an improvement of conditions in Tibet, a country that China has now brutally occupied for over 60 years. However, a decade into Xi's leadership, the opposite has come true. Tibet has only gotten worse, and Xi has become the most powerful Chinese leader since Chairman Mao Zedong. Last month, Xi was appointed to an unprecedented third term by China's rubber stamp legislature. With Xi firmly entrenched, it's important to look back on what his 10 years in power have done to Tibet and to look ahead to what the future holds. To do that, we have a guest who is a first-rate researcher on Tibet. In fact, he is ICT's research analyst, and I am proud to introduce him to you now. Please join me in welcoming my ICT colleague, Tenzin Norge. Norgila, Tashidle. Tashidle. Thanks for coming back to the program, Norge. Uh, it's good to have you on Tibet Talks once again. Uh, as I mentioned, to mark Xi's decade in power, you have written a new report for ICT called 10 Years of Xi Jinping, Signification and Securitization of Tibetans for the Chinese Nation State. That report will be published by ICT soon. And today we're gonna to have a conversation about your findings. Norgela, as I mentioned, you are ICT's research analyst and you've written a new soon to be published report about Xi Jinping's <coughs> 10 years in power and what they mean for Tibet. But to begin with, let's talk a little bit about Xi himself. Who is Xi Jinping? Where did he come from and how did he rise the ranks of power? Thank you, Ashwin. As a researcher, I find uh, Xi Jinping's life very fascinating. And uh, as you mentioned in the, during the introduction, he is now the most powerful Chinese leader after Mao Zedong. Uh, step back and begin like the conditions under which he grew up and you know when he was born and what was the state of affairs in China when he was born. You know, uh, going back to the history. So Xi Jinping is, was born in uh, 1953. That's like he is a leader, uh, the current Chinese leader, who was born after the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. He was born in Beijing, although his um, ancestral place would be uh, in Fuping in Shanxi province. Xi Jinping's like, uh, father, uh, Xi Tongxun, like, was one of the revolutionary leaders uh, of China. Therefore, in terms of uh, the Chinese leaders that are in existence today, Xi Jinping falls into the category of a princeling whose father was a revolutionary leader and who was powerful in the past. But at that time, uh, we also got to uh, rem remember that Mao was the paramount uh, leader in China. And uh, that also meant, uh, just like any other party leaders, his family, including his father, also had to face a lot of trials and tribulations. You know, when she was growing up, even his schooling had to be uh, stopped because uh, Mao would launch the Cultural Revolution in 1966. And then also later on, as he was growing up, uh, Mao comes with different ideas. And uh, he, early in his youth, was sent to work in an agricultural commune uh, in the countryside for about six, seven years. So there are these parts of his life history through which he has gone through a lot of uh, hardships during his early years. But then he, in a way, continued uh, his career. He was very determined. 
and he went to like the top Chinese school uh, to get his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, and then also like uh, also get uh, later on uh, also got a doctorate of law from um, Tsinghua University, which is um, equivalent comparable to MIT in the United States. Breakthrough in Chi's career, the, the, his rise in the ranks. He did not have a very uh, easy start in the uh, early uh, in his career because he applied to become a member of the Communist Party 10 times in uh, 73. And on his 10th attempt, he was <laughs> given membership. Uh, so in 74, uh, so that began his uh, career. And obviously, as he uh, went along the path, he has taken on different designations along his career as party secretaries or deputy party secretaries or governors of different counties and provinces in the Chinese heartland. Looking through his career, I think 74 was his launch in the Communist Party's hierarchy, uh, entry. And then, of course, uh, in 2002, uh, he, ranked, he rose to the rank a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. And then in 2007, he became one of the Politburo Standing Committee members. So uh, that's a very powerful position. And 2007 onwards, uh, that was his, I, I would say, uh, his watershed year in terms of his kickstarting his career as the top leader of China. And 2008, he became the, uh, the vice president. And then coming to uh, more recent years, in 2012, uh, November, uh, he was the general secretary of the Communist Party of China, which is like the top leadership position of the Communist Party of China. And subsequently, as you mentioned in your introduction, he was appointed as the president of the People's Republic of China in March 2013. Going through his life history, uh, it's a very fascinating uh, life history. And he has, you know, one would assume that, you know, con considering his early years, hardships that he and his family members endured would make him like uh, would have a softer uh, heart in that sense or more liberal mindedness uh, you know because he had to go through a lot of hardships uh, but then work out as you know we would assume it to be <laughs> because uh, uh, I think essentially thoughts and the positions uh, that Xi Jinping has taken has uh, contradicted uh, many of uh, the analysts and researchers' uh, assumptions about where he might go during his leadership. Thank you, Norgela. And, and you're right, that is a uh, interesting and sad detail that someone who endured so much hardship at the hands of the Communist Party when he was young and whose family also endured hardship is now himself responsible for inflicting so much suffering on other people. But an important part of Xi's story is his family's personal connections to Tibet, and in fact, to His Holiness the Dalai Lama himself. Can you please tell us about those connections? Uh, yeah, so Xi Jinping's uh, family has a lot of uh, connections to uh, Tibetan um, in many ways. To begin with, his father, uh, Xi Tongshun, was, uh, um, like, uh, had a very good relationship with uh, the Tibetan leaders, like political and religious leaders in Tibet. In the early years, in 1954, uh, when His Holiness would go to uh, Beijing for, uh, for an extended stay, you know, he would constantly meet with uh, Xi Jinping's father, Xi Tongshun, and uh, he had a great affinity towards Xi Jinping's father. He would, in a way, uh, give him uh, an Omega watch, uh, which is like a rare commodity, <laughs> you know, uh, and then you know, Xi Tongshun would, in effect, wear that watch many years, many decades down the line. 
because uh, uh, you know uh, as uh, as a symbol of friendship uh, so yeah so she she tungshun many of the tibetan leaders like the, uh, the elders uh, from what i know uh, from what i've he- heard is that you know many have uh, a good view of him uh, because he was a, a moderate in that sense uh, who had very moderate views in terms of um, minority policies on how to deal with the tibetans and the Uyghurs and the other and, and other minorities in china and of course Xi is also like opposed it down the line uh, when the Beijing uh, Tiananmen crackdown happened he was one of those leaders who opposed uh, that crackdown in that sense like he is viewed as someone with a very moderate uh, viewpoint and if you ask any Tibetans like you know in terms of uh, their views on Chinese leaders there will be only two figures <laughs> there would be first Hu Yaobang who is always like Tibetans love citing Hu Yaobang's policies because Hu Yaobang was very liberal and early in his uh, years in 1980s and during his visits to Tibet uh, he reversed uh, many of the uh, earlier policies and he even went to the extent of apologizing to the Tibetans for uh, for the misrule and uh, he also introduced many policies uh, uh, pulled out many of the Chinese uh, cadres out of Tibet and all the other meanings would have to learn Tibetans so that you know, they can interact uh, with the Tibetans uh, more amicably. So Hu Yaobang is there right at the top in terms of Tibetans standard affinity. for yeah. like affinity, like a standard mm-hmm. for how a ruler should be. Uh, and then there's of course also like uh, uh, leaders like Shi uh, Tongshun, Shi Jinping's father, who also is um, often cited by Tibetan elders, like someone as uh, very uh, moderate viewpoints and who uh, tries to work things up uh, without using any violence, you know, basically, let's work it out kind of attitude. Uh, so that is like his father's uh, legacy. And then, of course, Xi Jinping is a very, uh, a very uh, devout Buddhist practitioner. And it, even at the end of her life, uh, when he passed away, when she passed away, and she was buried under full Tibetan Buddhist rich uh, rites. So I've even heard from very good sources that uh, Xi Jinping's mother, uh, when Xi Jinping came to power, uh, she in a way asked him to bring his holiness back. So that is like uh, at the height of uh, how much of a, uh, like a closeness uh, that is there and how much of uh, the family wanted things uh, to be resolved. But then these are of course like from sources, good sources, but um, I, I don't have any video evidence or anything like this to show. So these are very uh, internal matters. Then of course, uh, she's wife is also like a practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, right? So there is this a lot of connections in she's family and uh, Tibet. So uh, that's why at the beginning of she's uh, rule, uh, because of all these family connections, all these historical relationship building, many of Tibetans and other observers thought, you know, things might get uh, different things might change yeah that's it's a really interesting point that you know given those those connections his mother his wife their affinity and love for uh, tibetan buddhism and respect for his holiness and the tibet and the tibetan people's uh respect for for xi's father relative to other chinese leaders what were those expectations when she took power 10 years ago what did tibetans inside tibet and outside tibet and other tibet observers expect she would do relative to Tibet once he uh, took over as China's top leader? Yeah, so uh, many of the observers didn't have you know, or understand into the peace 
political thinking. But then, of course, the best proxy was his father's legacy. So, you know, in that sense, his uh, people were viewing him uh, in the lens of his father's uh, policies, uh, thinking. Uh, so, so the, the expectation was like uh, that, you know, just like his father, he would also be moderate um, and he would be more uh, accommodating uh, in terms of uh, the Tibetans and other minority nationalities in China uh, in terms of implementing policies. And there was a lot of hope that, you know, that the Chinese leadership at the top, uh, led by him, uh, would be more realistic, would be more, more liberal-minded, you know. And yeah, the expectation was like many of the past policy grievances would be addressed. If we uh, step back 10 years ago and look at the, the all these self-immolations that have taken place inside Tibet, uh, beginning from, like, from 2011 to 2022, there have been about 159 uh, self-immolations in Tibet. And out of all these 159, 84 Tibetan self-immolators uh, self-immolated themselves in 2012. 84 out of 159 is like 53% of all the uh, self-immolated. So 53% of the uh, self-immolators doused themselves and put themselves on fire uh, in 2012. And 2012 is a very important year because that's the year when Xi Jinping came to power as the General Secretary of uh, Communist Party of China. So the message was, in my view, that they were hoping that through their selfless act, it may spark some change, bring about some sense, you know, that, you know, uh, some uh, good changes uh, with the new leadership. That was the expectation. Uh, but then, of course, things have not turned out as uh, per the expectation. And, uh, and now we continue to see what's happening inside Tibet. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Like you said, unfortunately, looking back a decade later, we can see that some of the optimism that people were feeling uh, 10 years ago has not come to fruition. But um, you kind of touched on this already with the uh, wave of self-immolations in uh, the number of self-immolations in 2012. And it is very interesting to think of that in the framework of those brave Tibetans hoping that this would actually bring about change um, as a she took power. But can you elaborate on that a little bit and kind of help us set the stage for what was actually happening in Tibet in 2012 and 2013? You mentioned self-immolations. There were other things going on at the time. What was the yeah. situation like there? So I think there are many events that were unfolding inside Tibet and also internationally before uh, Xi Jinping uh, ascended the top leadership as the general secretary and the uh, president of People's Republic of China. Uh, we have to step back and look at the, there was a huge pan-Tibet uprising by the Tibetan people in the spring of 2008, the year when the Tibetan people expressed themselves of, of their disaffection uh, with the uh, misrule that is being imposed on them. And if we even uh, step back, even more years back, we can often look in terms of internationally scenario about that. Uh, with the fall of the former Soviet Union and the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, China was very fearful. In fact, the, the, the Communist Party of China was very fearful that they might also meet the same fate as the collapsing of the communists uh, in Eastern Europe and the, and the implosion of the former Soviet Union. So they were taking a lot of uh, measures against... So these were the, the inside Tibet scenario and the international scenario under which uh, Xi Jinping uh, rose to power. With Xi's 
arrival on the scene as a top leader, uh, he, in a way, began to implement many of those uh, research findings uh, from the party leaders of how to ensure that you know the CCP remains in power uh, and it does not lose grip on its power and authority. So mm -hmm. that's why from day one, uh, it started the, the roller coaster started in that sense. If we look into the data on the refugees uh, exodus, Tibetan refugees exodus from uh, Tibet, uh, earlier in before Xi Jinping, before uh, 2008 uh, uprising, every year there was about roughly around 2,500 to 3,000 uh, new arrivals coming from Tibet, uh, fleeing Tibet and settling in the exile community. But then after the, the 2008 uprising, uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party started to implement more aggressive policies and that number started to drop down dramatically. Uh, in fact, in 2008, there was roughly about, I think, 700, if I remember correctly. But then uh, it climbed a bit uh, in 2011 to about, back to about 750. That was 2011. And then the year Xi Jinping came to power, 2012, uh, that number dropped like 50% uh, to roughly about 350. So over the years, since 2012 to now 2022, like uh, last count, it was only five Tibetan uh, refugees who managed to uh, make it out outside of Tibet. So that's, if you take into comparison between 2007, sorry, 2011, the year before Xi Jinping came to power, and 2022, the, the, the last calendar year, there's like a 99% drop in the arrival of uh, new refugees in Tibet. It is not that things have changed and life is beautiful and everything is harmonious and fine. And that's why people have stopped uh, fleeing Tibet. It is because a lot of policies have been implemented, a lot of measures have been taken, and you know, in terms of border blockage, in terms of uh, surveillance and whatnot. So, uh, so you can literally feel that the numbers have been now trickling down, down, down. It's now about five, and maybe in this calendar year, probably five or ten may be able to come out. But I don't expect more than that. That was like what was. Um, uh, the scenario inside Tibet and also international scenario under which Xi Jinping uh, came came to power and how he started to uh, roll out his policies. Thank you, Noriela. So let's get a little bit into uh, some of those policies that she uh, has implemented uh, during his decade in power. One of the major goals that she has pursued in Tibet is sinification, which can otherwise be known as sinicization. So can you tell us what is sinification? And what does it mean to, as the report says, sinify Tibetans in the Chinese nation state? Yeah, to understand sinification, I think we have to first step back and also understand uh, one of the central theme uh, of Xi's um, rule. And that is, he would address, uh, reiterate it again and again, this Chinese phrase called Tunghua Minzu, which in the, in the English uh, equivalent, uh, means like Chinese nation. The vision for China, there has been like a lot of political leaders, there's philosophers, uh, you name it. Before uh, establishment of the People's Republic of China, leaders and thinkers have been thinking about what should be the vision for China. And even after the uh, establishment of PRC in 1949, 
thinkers and philosophers were still thinking about uh, the vision for China. What should China be? So there have been a lot of exchange of thoughts, debates of like you know um, many proposals, but over the years the hardline the hardliners uh, stream of thought has uh, prevailed in my opinion, and you know, Xi Jinping has in a way derived um, many of his thoughts from many of these hardliners uh, stream of thoughts. Uh, he could have gone in many different directions, but then uh, there were options before him, and uh, but he chose to uh, go with the hardliner stream of thought. What does this emphasis on Chunghua Minzu mean? You know, we have to look into some many of the Xi Jinping speeches, and he talks about China dream, uh, the rejuvenation of China, uh, and he has even gone for, forward as two milestones, uh, goals. Like first has already been achieved according to the party, and the second one is now uh, the, the national rejuvenation of China by the centennial anniversary of the People's Republic of China's establishment, which is 2049. So that is the party's thinking. That is the uh, Xi Jinping's thinking to look to the centennial goal and how to rejuvenate China. Um, you know, and it, for that. To create a Chinese nation is very, very important for Xi Jinping. And what do you mean by Chinese nation? So in a way, it is making everything, everyone in China, uh, you know, uh, Chinese in their thinking, in their period, in like whatnot. Therefore, there is a lot of uh, the party's emphasis on, you know, manufacturing uh, consciousness of the Chinese community. And this is something that has been brought up over and over again throughout uh, Xi Jinping's rule and it is still uh, going on inside Tibet. When we talk about sinification uh, or sinicization or some, some of the prefer like Chinification, I think you know one very uh, that like at the, at the current discourse and the, and the uh, observers comments it's it centers around sinification of religion. Uh, it's it, I think that is not in a way accurate. Uh, mm. You know, the observers like to comment about signification of religion because the Communist Party um, situates signification in terms of religion. So that's why they are they are following in that direction. But I think, in my view, it means broader than that. It means changing the identity of everyone inside Tibet, inside China, including of course Tibetans and Uyghurs and all the peoples, to become. Chinese. I find uh, one uh, very thoughtful piece by Dr. Max Oitman, uh, a, a professor uh, from Georgetown University, uh, in his writing, which was very, very clear and to the point and very succinct. I think I will just uh, read what he uh, wrote. It's a very uh, succinct paragraph. And he says, the purpose of, uh, that's his preference, Chinification, in the purpose of Chinification is not simply the assimilation of minority groups into the Han, but rather the creation of a new supra-ethnic identity animated by loyalty to the PRC state and the messianic world historical mission of the CCP. The Xi Jinping cohort have revived the somewhat moribund phrase Tsinghua Minzu to serve as a unifying label for the China-fied people of the PRC. So it is uh, at the heart of it, signification is about converting everyone to be Chinese. So the Communist Party is an identity 
juggernaut and he wants everyone to be feel uh, and act and believe and represent themselves and identify themselves as Chinese for a Chungha Minzu, a Chinese nation. So you can uh, look through these threat, uh, how it has developed uh, over the years and what it means. And I think, you know, uh, the, the Chinese academics and public intellectuals and policymakers have also played a lot of role because before Xi Jinping came to power, there were intellectuals, Dr. Ma Rong from Beijing University, and then uh, other intellectuals like uh, Hu Wangang and Hu Lianhe, like from the Tsinghua University, and others from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and of course, True Vision, uh, the leader of the uh, United Front Work Department, who in the early 2000s have been advocating for removing all the ethnic policies that were in China and uh, that would in a way acknowledge the distinct identity of all the peoples like Tibetans. And they were in a way proactively uh, advocating for uh, complete removal of the autonomy laws and all the nationality policies and start to impose a policy by which everyone will identify themselves as China. So this is what the, what the uh, policymakers and the intellectuals were thinking of thinking, and that, that was the way the debate was. And Xi Jinping, I think, uh, has you know extracted a lot of these into his uh, policymaking, and these advocates have in a way prevailed in uh, stovepiping uh, their advocacy straight to the leadership at the top level uh, for implementation. And now we have during the establishment of the PRC. Uh, there was this thing called the first generation ethnic policy. And now uh, we can safely assume that that is uh, gone and uh, most of it. And now uh, as, as with these um, intellectuals, uh, now what we are seeing is a s implementation of a second generation of ethnic policies. So the second generation of ethnic policies essentially means make everyone Chinese think Chinese, identify themselves as Chinese, recognize themselves as Chinese. So that's uh, the general common thread that is uh, going across uh, the last 10 years of Xi Jinping's rule, derived from many of the thinkers and philosophers' uh, thinkings and, and ideologies. Well, staying on this point of sinification, um, can we get a little more detail on uh, specifically how sinification played out in Tibetan education and in Tibetan religion? I think, you know, education-wise, this is, um, uh, in terms of signification, the schools in uh, Tibet uh, has been a target uh, domain or, and the youth demographic uh, a target group because, now, as I said, men, uh, mentioned earlier, the goal is to create uh, a rejuvenation of China, China by 2049, so they are still about... Uh, 27 years left in that uh, to achieve the goal uh, for the uh, Xi Jinping's uh, uh, for Xi, uh, for Xi Jinping's uh, uh, rule. How do you convert everyone into Chinese? Yeah, I mean, like nobody has con uh, uh, invented a machine where you put someone into the machine and out comes the Chinese, right? <laughs> so you you in a way you know, social engineer the people into uh, becoming Chinese. So that is what is happening in Tibet, and that is what uh, right now the focus is uh, for the for the young generation, like students, Tibetan children. Uh, you know, at the early start, they would be 
taught in uh, primarily in Chinese language Fudunghua, and then you know politically indoctrinated and this would start from like six years of age and by the time these children like 27 years down the line when they become young men and women uh, you know you can literally imagine it would they would be going through this tube for uh, 27 years and once they come out of the tube they would start thinking uh, identifying themselves as Chinese because that's what the whole indoctrination has been throughout the tube in terms of signification of the uh, of the of the Tibetan youth demographic, I think uh, the Tibetan Active Institute has done a fantastic report. You know th that talks about the state boarding schools in Tibet, and in their reports, they through their research, they found that you know that eight hundred thousand Tibetan children between the age of six and eighteen, which is this eight hundred thousand roughly is about seventy eight percent of the uh, of the Tibetan children, they all go through this are uh, all uh, now boarded into these uh, uh, state-run uh, boarding schools. It is also interesting that, you know, this policy establishing boarding schools uh, begins way earlier than um, Xi Jinping's rule. It was, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, launched someday in early 2000s. But then in, in the mainland Chinese heartlands, there was a lot of pushback. And uh, around 2012, you know, at the start of Xi Jinping's rule, uh, many of those, the so-called quote-unquote school consolidation policy was uh, withdrawn. Uh, the school consolidation policy, in a way, means removing the village schools, the rural schools, and merging them into uh, larger urban um, education uh, centers. So this was, uh, there was a lot, lot of pushback from the Chinese uh, against this policy, and the, and the Communist Party withdrew that uh, policy. But... The exact reverse happened inside Tibet, right? For in Tibet, it was uh, even um, strengthened in, in terms of implementation. And by the time in around 2000, uh, like mid-2015s, uh, like few years uh, after uh, Xi Jinping uh, has come into power, now we find about 78% of the Tibetan children in the state boarding schools. And now, you know, the... the Chinese government's um, argument is that, you know, that they are providing uh, good education, uniforms, textbooks, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, that's the argument uh, that I see constantly on the, on the state media. But then, you know, if you look beyond these superficial indicators of uniform or food or things like that, you try to look in the, behind and see what is being taught in these schools. What is the curriculum like? What is the school schedule like? You know, so we, I think, you know, that is where uh, the uh, the real purpose of uh, these schools start to show up. So, I, yeah, that is like now uh, for the lack of time, I think I would also address your other question about signification of religion. Mm -hmm. uh, religion is also like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Communist Party, uh, in terms of its political discourse, is explicitly talking about signification of religion. You know, earlier in the days when the the CCP had, uh, after the Mao's um, misrule, she, uh, the Communist Party uh, was relatively moderate in terms of allowing people to believe in their religions. But then, uh, because the, their political theories and their belief is that, you know, with the process of time, religion will wither away, it will go away. And, but then, the exact opposite happened, like with the growing materialistic trend in China, 
religion was mushrooming all over China, and that quite a way startled the Communist Party. They were quite that, that was unexpected. According to to their theories, it should wither away, but no, it is coming back, and it's like coming back in full force. And it is in a way the Communist Party thinks that you know this is a challenge to the authority, and they want to address it. They have to address it, otherwise they will lose all their efforts in getting their uh, legitimacy, uh, political and social legitimacy. So that's why I think Xi Jinping's rule takes a lot of emphasis of signification of the uh, of religions. And I, uh, it begins from uh, 2015 uh, at the Central United, United Work Front Central Conference that uh, signification uh, was uh, mentioned for the first time. Then, of course, the next year, following year in 2016, the, the National Religious Work Conference um, in 2016 again substantiated what signification means and how it should be done. And one of the very interesting facts about this National Religious Work Conference in 2016 is that Xi Jinping uh, presided, over, presided over that conference. And this was like happening after, after 15 years because before him, the other uh, Chinese leaders have not done that. Uh, uh, his predecessor was uh, Hu Jintao. He has not uh, presided over such a meeting, but then Xi Jinping thought it's important uh, in terms of his policies. So he presided over this meeting. Then, of course, because he really wants it to be implemented uh, in full force. And uh, so the last National Religious World Conference was in, 20, in December 2021, and he reiterated the same uh, thinking about synthesizing all the religions in China. So that would mean basically at the heart of it, essentially, uh, synthesization of relig religions means that, you know, uh, the believers should put the Communist Party before their own faith. Uh, you know, the, they should put Xi Jinping, uh, before their own prophets. So that is what the signification essentially boils down to. If you look beyond this discourse, Xi Jinping are doing his visit to, to Lhasa in July 2021. He also went to the Tibetan monastery, Jebung monastery, and during his interaction over, with the monks over there, he emphasized about harmonization of religions and, of course, uh, adapting it to the, uh, to the local conditions. You know, and, and by that, local condition doesn't mean according, uh, adapting it to the Tibetan conditions, but adapting it to the Chinese conditions. Programs or campaigns that were carried out to achieve these goals, just let me just talk a little bit about the four. Okay, um, I won't elaborate more, uh, uh, much about the four standards campaign that has been happening uh, for the last uh, four or five years. And now, if we look into the recent uh, campaign, it is now focused on this thing called three consciousness mm -hmm. in the uh, you know uh, in the monastic community. So, if you look into state media, it's always about. So and so, when you do this monastery and conducted the three conscious uh, consciousness workshop, and the and the monks and nuns loved it, you know all those things. But it is in a way uh, signifying, uh, trying to uh, significate uh, the religious believers. And I think uh, this will uh, continue. Um, this is very current, uh, and it is going to continue. Uh, maybe the, the Communist Party come, may come out with a new campaign sometime down the line. Uh, with another catchphrase, but essentially it would mean the same thing. Thank you, Norgila. And um, in the interest of time, I am going to ask uh, just one more question here before we open it up to questions from our audience. The second major goal of Xi's rule that you identify in your report is the national securitization of Tibet. 
You write that there had long been a debate among party leaders about whether to emphasize development or security, but under Xi, that debate has ended and security has clearly won out. First of all, when Xi and the other CCP leaders talk about national security in terms of Tibet, what does that mean exactly? What is national security in China's eyes when it comes to Tibet? Yeah, so national security, when people, I'm like, uh, they are fantastic, uh, great uh, academics who have written a lot about national security. I think I, I urge uh, the viewers to read uh, the writings of uh, Dr. Gina Graytons, uh, a professor at the University of Texas, and Dr. Kai Ming Chung, a professor at the University of California, San Diego. Their writings are very clear. Uh, because they have been studying national security, uh, the discourse in in China, and what it means. And I benefited a lot from their research. National security, if, if we, outside observers, when we think about national security, we would think about external threats and how to counter that, what kind of external threat is coming inside the country, you know, that kind of uh, thinking. But then, uh, in terms of China, uh, in Xi Jinping's thinking of, uh, like, rule party, National security is, as identified by Dr. Sheena Greitens, is essentially about regime security of the Communist Party of China. The Communist Party of China has, in a way, very clearly put forward that, that political security is the foundation for national security. And what is the political foundation? It's the political, political uh, security of the Communist Party of China. And also, if you look into uh, many of these discourses and Many of these uh, Chinese national security meetings, what are they discussing most of the time? It's all about uh, internal Chinese matters. Because the Chinese thinks that, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they have, they, there was a lot of shakeup in Chinese mentalities, the Communist Party's mentality with the fall of the former Soviet Union, implosion of the former Soviet Union, and uh, the collapse of communism in Eastern China, uh, in, sorry, Eastern Europe. So, uh, they were looking into all those things, and then, you know, in their eyes, the changing international scenario, environment, they think that, you know, a lot of what, quote-unquote, non-traditional threats are emerging that is going to infiltrate China, and that's going to overturn and lead to uh, fall of uh, Communist Party of China. So that's a, there's a, that's a threat perception of the Communist Party of China. Uh, so in that sense, uh, they have taken a lot of uh, measures against uh, against that. And Xi Jinping early in his um, uh, uh, rule in 20, 2013, he put forward this concept called overall national security concept. And, you know, and then a couple of years later, uh, came out with the Chinese national security strategy. And then from there, you have all these security related uh, laws and policies that pop out all in the name of and uh, in the name of national security. Uh, and national security in China uh, covers like 15 different domains, ranging from military, politi politics, economy, environment, ecology, deep space, marine, you name it. Everything is covered under this thing called national security. But everything cannot be about national security, right? So when national security means everything, in reality, it means nothing but yeah. the regime security of China. Sorry, the regime security of the Communist Party of China. That's uh, the, the that's the perception of the Communist Party uh, under Xi Jinping's rule, and then of course uh, in that in that under that perception they see Tibetans as uh, you know as a, as a threat to to China, and that's what they articulate. 
and also include incorporate in the national security educational guidelines that are uh, taught and implemented all across China's schools and area, uh, the cities and rural areas wherever you go. And these education guidelines, if you look into those, they would in a way say that Tibetans and the other Uyghurs and the, these quote-unquote minorities in the West, they are all like terrorists, they are extremists, separatists, and that's what is being indoctrinated in the Chinese uh, community in in the in mainland China. Why do why do do they do it? Because you know, in a way, if they can't, if the Communist Party indoctrinate them the Chinese with these kind of uh, thinking, then in you know, and whatever policies they implement in Tibet, in the Chinese um, people's view, it's fighting separatism, fighting terrorism, fighting extremism. So the perspectives changed through a state indoctrination uh, in the name of national security, which in, a, in fact means regime security of the CCP. Thanks very much, Nargila. Um, this has been a very informative uh, discussion about Xi's rule in uh, Tibet. And I hope for our audience, this has given you all a lot of information about uh, the situation there right now and what it means to have Xi Jinping in rule, uh, in power in China. And uh, I want to turn now to questions from our audience. Um, so firstly, we have two questions here from Sultram Kunsong. The first question is, Norgela, thank you for your research on Xi's life. It sounds like an interesting read. Can you share the title of the book so I can put that in my reading list? So I'll go ahead and answer that one, and then we can move on to the second question. It's uh, the title of Norgay's report is 10 Years of Xi Jinping, Sinification and Securitization of Tibetans for the Chinese Nation State. As I mentioned earlier, that report will be published by ICT very soon, so please check our website for that. But let me move on to the second question from Sultram Kunsangla, and that is, what made Xi go the opposite of what we hoped for when he first assumed the presidency? Isn't it a good learning curve for us not to rely or hope too much on individuals down the line in our struggle? Uh, that's a great, fantastic question. Uh, obviously, uh, as I mentioned during my, um, a lot of, there was a lot of optimism, hope that things will change for the better with Xi Jinping at the, uh, at the, at the top leadership. And you're absolutely right um, that, you know, uh, it's, I think, I agree with you, it's wrong, or I should say, it's an error uh, to place all the hope, hopes on individuals, uh, you know, politicians, uh, rulers. In my thinking, I would look more, uh, broader in terms of uh, the Communist Party of China's thinking. That's what, uh, that's the best indicator of how things may change or shape up in the future. Individual rules come and go, but then the Communist Party of China is day to stay. And that is like the institution through which all these policies are being implemented and maintained and historical memory is there. And uh, time and again, it would cycle and come back to square one. So Xi Jinping, uh, despite all his family connections and uh, all the hopes, when uh, when he became uh, the president of China, he was entrusted with a mandate by the part by the Communist Party uh, senior, the elders, and that mandate was to ensure the longevity and survival of the Communist Party of China. And I think that is exactly what he is doing. All his policies, thinking, points to that direction that he is a party man at the heart of it. 
He's vanguard of the Communist Party of China. Let's see. Uh, there are many people who are also comparing Xi Jinping to uh, Mao Zedong. Uh, Mao and Xi, I think, are two different types of leaders, in my opinion. Of course, Xi Jinping is the most powerful leader after Mao uh, ruled China. But then Mao was, uh, you know, when uh, he when he was facing a lot of criticism uh, upon himself, he would, in a way, direct the people to uh, destroy uh, the Communist Party of China. That was uh, how he was channelizing the energy. You know, he can do lots of uh, very uh, extreme, dangerous things, but Xi Jinping doesn't do that. You know, he is all about Communist Party of China. And uh, so that's uh, what uh, my thinking is that, you know, uh, it's, um, it's an error uh, to place too much of a hope in terms of individuals, um, uh, politicians, um, family background and all, but the better indicator of way policies are and how it may uh, go forward would be look at the, um, you know, at the uh, broader uh, policy thinking of the Communist Party of China. Thanks, Nuryula. We have one last question here before we wrap up, and this is from Andrea Sims, who writes, what is the effect of children attending Chinese boarding schools? Are the children able to continue to value Tibetan traditions or is the indoctrination generally successful? Yeah, so as I uh, mentioned earlier, there was these, a lot of children in these state-run boarding schools uh, that are being indoctrinated, are, that are being sent through this tube, uh, at the end of which, once they emerge as a uh, young man or woman into the workforce uh, with their own thinking and positions, they would face a lot of danger that they would uh, emerge out as uh, thinking of themselves as Chinese, you know, because that is what uh, Xi Jinping wants them to think, you know. That is what Xi Jinping uh, said during the 7th Tibet Work Forum uh, in 2020. Uh, Tibet Folk Forum is like the highest policy-making body in terms of Tibet policy. And in that part, during that Work Forum, he said, like, you know, that we should, the Communist Party of China should, strongly implement ideological and political uh, education indoctrination of, of the children at all levels to uh, inculcate uh, loyalty and love to China and the Chinese nation and blah, blah, blah. So that is what the thinking is. That is what the instructions are. But then at the ground level, I think um, I do have some hope that, you know, it is not... It, it is not very straightforward like that. You know, <laughs> there are lots. There are going to be lots of pushback in terms of Tibetan cultural uh, resilience. The state and the Communist Party might wish uh, for all the children, the Tibetans, to think in terms of uh, their ideologies, in terms of what they instruct. But then also, these the Tibet and the Tibetans have a long history. It's a civilization. It's a, it has a history of around. 30, 3,000 years old, and some may even say 4,000, 4, but uh, that's with this uh, civilization and cultural thinking at the back, it's not going to be very easy for the Communist Party of China to change Tibetan mindset. It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of pushback, and the, and the, and the party uh, would again uh, come down even harder. That's uh, how the cycle go has been going on, and unfortunately, this is how things are. So it's a push and pull all the time, and I have faith in uh, the Tibetan cultural um, resilience that, you know, we will uh, prevail in the long run.
Thank you, Norgula. It, it is important to end on a positive note. And, um, you know, as you said, uh, Tibetans are very culturally resilient people. The future is not set in stone. I know we've shared a lot of distressing news about what uh, the situation under Xi Jinping is. But through our actions, we can help create a better future. And I want to encourage everyone who is watching or listening to this now to please help us to pass the Promoting a Resolution to the Tibet-China Conflict Act here in the United States. This is a very important piece of legislation that will increase pressure on the Chinese government to resume dialogue with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and his envoys to reach a peaceful resolution to China's illegal occupation of Tibet by recognizing that Tibet's legal status has yet to be determined under international law. This is a very important piece of legislation that can help change the future of Tibet. So please sign our petition to your members of Congress at www.savetibet.org slash resolve Tibet. And while you are there, don't forget to sign our petition about the Panchen Lama at www.savetibet.org slash Panchen underscore Lama. Finally, as I mentioned uh, several times, Norge Lao's report on Xi Jinping's 10 years will be published soon by ICT. Please check our website and sign up to make sure you don't miss any of our updates at www.savetibet.org slash join. So thank you to all of you for sharing your questions, for watching and listening to this program. Thank you, Norge Lao, for this very informative, eye-opening, and uh, urgent conversation. We will be back next month with another episode of Tibet Talks. Until then, as our first guest on this program, Professor Tenzin Dorji likes to say, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.